You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we completed our discussion on chapter 52, and we began to talk about chapter 53. Now, we only hit to the tip of the iceberg, and there's quite a bit more to talk about in chapter 3, so let's go ahead and get started picking up at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, with these words, we are told about the servant of Yahweh growing up before Yahweh. Like in Luke chapter 24, we know that all these things are written of Jesus. But after the crucifixion, you had those disciples on the road to Emmaus who were disappointed. They were depressed. Why? Because of the things that Jesus of Nazareth was doing, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all people, that he was before God. So here he grew up before God. The Son growing up according to the human nature, according to the incarnation, before the Father. That he is like a root who is growing out of dry ground. This is the word that is used for us back in Isaiah chapter 11. The root of Jesse. That in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That this is the root that sprouts forth from the dry land. Now think of the image of the dry land as we've talked about many times in the past. When we are thinking of a parched land, a dry land, this is a land without water, a land without life. This is something miraculous taking place here. In a dry land where there is no water, there is no life, a root is now growing up from this parched land. In Jeremiah 50, you have a very similar phrase that's used here, in which the prophet speaks these words of God, saying, Your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert. When a woman is a desert or a wilderness, a dry land, that means that there is no children. There cannot be birth. Or, for instance, in the book of Hosea, the prophet then is told by God to plead with your mother, plead with her, for she is not my wife, says Yahweh, and I am not her husband, that she would put away her whoring before her face and her adultery from between her breast, lest I strip her naked and make her in the day as she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land, and kill her with no thirst. Again, without water, 
there is death and there is no life. Without water and the word, there is no spiritual life. Without the Holy Spirit, And of course, here, when you have a mother and children, when she's dried up and parched, she does not bring forth life. Something very miraculous is taking place here when a parched land is sprouting forth this root. Now, for this very reason, Eusebius of Caesarea sees in this a depiction and an image of the virgin birth. Remember, this is that promise back in Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That this one who is, as it were, a parched land, a dried wilderness, which should not bear fruit, for a virgin cannot have the fruit of the womb without the seed from the man. Something unique and miraculous is here, going back to that promise in the garden, in which God said the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That, of course, pointing to this miraculous virgin birth. Now here, this shoot, this root, this plant will grow up and sprout from that which is dead. In other words, from that which should not produce life, miraculously. Yet all things are possible with God's word. He calls in existence the things that do not exist. He does what his word says. He fulfills what he promises. Now, when this root sprouts forth, the one who comes forth from the dry land, well, he, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is clearly talking about the Christ the one that would reveal to us Yahweh. And this is Yahweh revealing to us that we would not want to look at him, to behold him, to see him. This is talking about his humanity. He is a common man. And in particular, as according to his human nature, he comes to suffer, to be afflicted, to be crucified, to die This is something that is not extraordinary, nothing that is glorious or beautiful. For this reason, Paul will write to the Philippians in chapter 2, saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And of course, what name is that? That's the divine name. That is Yahweh himself. For Jesus is Yahweh. Or again in Acts chapter 3, consider with me. In which Peter says, Now brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as also your rulers did, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And here we see this in Isaiah chapter 53, that there was nothing in his appearance that we would uh, behold as something majestic or beautiful, for no reason why we would look upon him as something spectacular. 
Why? Because he is rejected by his own people. He's rejected by all of humanity. Now, later on in Acts chapter 13, again, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understood the utterance of the prophets, which they are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled in the condemning of him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They did not recognize the Lord of glory, you see. There was nothing in him that was spectacular, that we should look at him, his majesty or beauty. So they put an end to him, cutting him off from the land of the living. In concert with this, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, saying, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 53, we pick up at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, if you recall, back in chapter 52, we were told that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Here we're taught about the mystery of the incarnation. The word became flesh. He came to die. To be despised and rejected by humanity. Now, in the Incarnation, notice this language that he is a man of sorrows. Now, this is language of the mystery of the Incarnation. This this same word here in the Hebrew that's about pain and sorrow and suffering is the same word that was used back in Exodus chapter 3, in which we were taught about the mystery of the Incarnation, in which Moses writes that Yahweh said... I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings. Now, this is the same word that we're translating here in Isaiah 53 as sorrows, that Yahweh himself knows intimately this suffering, this pain, this sorrow. That he's a man of sorrow. That's This is all mystery of the incarnation language. The Yahweh says, I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land, a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The God is the one who comes to his people, that he suffers with his people and for his people, to bring them into a promised land. That, of course, is all mystery of the incarnation language that we learned back in Exodus chapter 3 and now echoed here in Isaiah 53. The picture that Isaiah paints for us is one of suffering. He is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their faces. But yet, what's the response? We acknowledged him not. 
The we is the people of Israel, the people of God who had the promise of God, the promise that had been handed down since Adam and Eve to Noah and his children and to Abraham and his offspring. But yet we, the people of Israel, we did not receive him, just as John the evangelist testifies in his gospel, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That is, we esteemed him not. Or in Matthew 21, Jesus teaches this in a parable in which he talks about the father sending his servants beforehand. But finally, the father sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. See, the people acknowledged him not. They esteemed him not. They withdrew from him and received him not. Now, going back to Isaiah 53, picking up at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, once again, notice this uh, parallel and this echoing that he has the griefs, that is the diseases that we had back in verse 3. He's acquainted with grief. Now, this is the covenant curse that God had given to his people back in Deuteronomy 28. If God's people refuse to listen to his voice and break the covenant, then such curses like grief and diseases would come upon them. So in Deuteronomy 28, Yahweh will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness and grief, also every affliction that is not recorded in the books of this law, Yahweh will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Now, these are the griefs, the diseases that he bears. He bears the curse because we have broken the covenant, that we have transgressed God's law, that we have caused a separation from the creation and the creator. But now there's something powerfully theological and spiritual going on here, that when he bears our griefs, our diseases— our afflictions in suffering because of the curse, that means he takes it away from us. Now, in the New Testament, when he heals the mother-in-law of Jesus, notice what Matthew tells us, that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Notice what's taking place here. You have a total reverse of the curse. The one who knew no sin becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our wickedness is imputed to him. And his righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone. That he takes upon the curse. He takes upon the diseases and the illnesses 
And this is precisely how he heals, how he restores. He does this for us. That surely he has borne our griefs, our diseases, and carried our sorrow. He has done this for us. This is the purpose of the rejection and suffering and death of Christ, that he may take this away. Now we, again, that's the people of Israel, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. That the rulers of the people, when they crucified Jesus, they declared him to be cursed, and they wanted to cut him off again from the land of the living. Now, going back to Isaiah 53, we pick up at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, notice exactly what's going on here, that he's taking our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement that we should have, he takes instead. And why does he do this? So that he may bring us peace, that he may heal us, that he's pierced for our transgressions. And as Paul will write in Romans 4, he was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. That he was crushed for our iniquities. Now, the purpose of his suffering was not for his sin. It was not for him or anything that he had done wrong, but it was for our sake. He was made to be sin, the one who knew no sin. It was for our sake that he was handed over to death that we might have life. Now, when Luther lectures on Isaiah 53, he wants us to be very clear on the fact and the function. The fact is that Christ has suffered. But the function is, why has Christ suffered? That Christ has suffered for our sins in order to restore us. Because he dies in our stead, we have life before God. That his blood shed for us brings to us forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That we would be reconciled with the Father. For his sake, now we have peace with God. Now, in John chapter 16, Jesus teaches his disciples. He teaches us his students. And he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus dies that we might have peace with the Father. In fact, earlier in John's Gospel at chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christ gives to us peace in our hearts. Our hearts are troubled by sin and death and all the experiences of life. But Jesus' words of promise bring to us peace. That for the sake of Christ, we now have peace with the Father. 
In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. When Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is one of the titles that Isaiah gave to Jesus. That this son, this son given to us, this child born for us, well, this one, he is to be the prince of peace. And it is with his wounds, in his suffering, in his death, that we are healed. The Apostle Peter will echo this in his first letter, chapter 2, saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, healing only comes from Christ. He alone bears our sins. He delivers us from the consequence and results of sin. Because of original sin, we are all born, we are all conceived as enemies of God. We are conceived and born in sin and enmity with God. But while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? To bring us peace, to reconcile us with the Father. Now, going back to Isaiah 53, the prophet paints this picture of us, what what we are like. Because he's already told us what Christ is like and what he has done. He has suffered for us. But now he says, what are we like? Well, at verse 6, Isaiah says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, notice this corporate confession here, that we have all sinned in thought, word, and deed. We are all like sheep, not listening to the voice of God. And in Psalm 119, these words are echoed. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Now notice how all of Psalm 119 is talking about the word of God. That God's word enlightens and makes wise that God's word comes to give light and life. But at the end of this entire long psalm, you get to the last point where it says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And the only solution is to plead for mercy and grace, to go before God humbly and request that he would seek the servant, the one who desires to serve, but yet like a lost sheep, continues to go astray. But this is precisely what the good shepherd has come to do, to lay down his life for the sheep, to seek and to save the lost. Now, that's why in First Peter, when he writes in chapter 2, says, You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That Jesus himself is the bishop. He is the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Now, to stray and to wander away is the image of sheep without a shepherd. No one to guard them, no one to guide them, no one to come and to keep them. 
And that image of sheep wandering around without a shepherd, going astray in whatever way you want to, this depicts the helplessness of sheep. They need a shepherd to rescue them. And in Zechariah chapter 13, this is exactly how he's going to rescue by dying. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, and strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this is exactly what happens at the crucifixion. When Jesus is taken away to be crucified and to die, the disciples disperse. Again, as the text said, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, that on the cross Jesus was cursed, that he became a curse for us in order to release us from the curse, that we would be blessed in him. Now, going back to Isaiah 53, we pick up at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Now, notice that in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, you have that Ethiopian eunuch who's reading these very words as he's in the chariot and taking out the Isaiah scroll. Now, notice the account that Luke gives to us, writing this. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And it's at this point the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Now, notice that when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this, he knows this is about a man of sorrows. He knows this is about someone who is oppressed and afflicted, someone who is smitten and stricken, someone who is rejected by the people of God. But who is this one? Well, it's not until Philip opens his eyes to see by giving him the key that is Jesus that all the prophets had proclaimed the suffering and the death of Jesus so that sins would be forgiven, so that we would be reconciled with God and have peace with the Creator. And all of this is possible by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Now, remember what Luther said. We want to know the fact and the function, that he suffered and died but he suffered and died for our sins that we would be healed, that we would be restored before God. Now, how does he do this? Well, he does this as a sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who stands before his accusers and is silent 
so that not only does he fulfill the law by his active obedience, but even in his passive obedience, that these things are done to him. In the gospel text, they give to us the account, the facts of what took place in the suffering of Jesus, in particular at his trials where he was silent. For instance, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Or again in Matthew chapter 27, the apostle writes and says that when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, later on, Peter reflects on this in his epistle, that Christ is not only gift, but also example. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Thus, we ought to do the same thing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.